chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We are moving through the book of Acts as Paul prayed about just a moment ago. Um, and as we move through the book today, we're going to look at Acts 6 and, and 7 and a little bit of 8 as we come uh, to learn about the character Stephen. Uh, if you were with us when I preached on Acts 6 verses 1 through 7, then you know that Stephen is one of the first deacons. In fact, the very first one who is mentioned and as we study Stephen's life and look at him, I think what we find is that he was a remarkable man. Someone who is worthy of emulation, someone that we would all want to be like. Just look at a few things the scripture says about Stephen. In, in Acts 6 and verse 5, when they were choosing the first deacons, the first one, we're told, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then, and where we're picking up today, in Acts 6 and verse 8, we read, Now Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. And evidently Stephen was telling about the kingdom of God, was telling the people about the work that Christ had done, and as a result, there was opposition to what he was doing. And we read in verse 10 that these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. So here's a man who is full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and of power and of wisdom, and who speaks by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see today that Stephen is falsely accused. There are false witnesses that are brought against him, and he's arrested and hauled before the Sanhedrin. And they ask him about the charges that are made. And if you look down in chapter 6 and verse 15, we're told in the face of, of these false witnesses, Stephen stands there before the Sanhedrin, and, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what you get like when people make real accusations against you. I get pretty bad about that. But when people make false accusations against you, here's a man who stands and, and his face is like that of an angel. What, what the scripture is saying here is that he was like one, someone who reflects the, the glory and the character of God because he's been close to God, because he's been with God. And so even in the face of these false accusations and he's on trial for what we're going to see are serious charges that cost him his life, he has the face of an angel. Keep going. Look at the end of chapter 7. At, at the end of this, they get really angry at what Stephen says. And they just take him and they drag him outside of the city and they just start throwing rocks at him. They stone him to death. Now, if you'll recall, remember the Sanhedrin, Jesus appeared before them, but they couldn't crucify him without going to the Romans because the Romans who were in power at the time had said, hey, you can't have uh, an execution like that unless it's approved by the Romans. They kept the power of the death penalty. And so that's why Jesus had to go to Pilate after he had faced the high priest and the Sanhedrin. They don't do that here. These folks just, just take Stephen and they drag him outside of the city and they kill him. R really, this is an illegal lynching that takes place. And look, and based on false witnesses, we're told, and look at his response. Look at verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh my gosh. Look at how he died. Under false pretenses. All the while, the graciousness that he shows to these people who had falsely accused him, who were illegally killing him, and he asked that the Lord would have mercy on them, that he would forgive them for the things that they're doing wrong. Obviously, following the example of the Lord Jesus on the cross who asked the same thing. But how do you live a life like this? How, how, how does one become like this? Somebody full of faith, of the Holy Spirit. Somebody full of grace and power and wisdom that when they speak, they speak by the Holy Spirit. Whose face, their countenance shows that they've been with God. That when the stones start to fly and hit them unjustly, they ask for others to be forgiven. That the sin would not be held against them. How remarkable. How can I be like that? I want to live that kind of life. I want to be like that. How does one become like, like that? I want to be like that. How can that characterize our life, that when the rocks start flying, even unjustly, that I reflect the character of God, in fact, the very words of Christ? How can I really make an impact? Because he does. Stephen's life is cut short, but we'll see here at the end that that Saul is right there and hears all these things and is greatly influenced by what happened. Read the letters of Paul. So much of what Stephen says in his speech characterized the themes and the theology of Saul who will become the Apostle Paul. How can we make a big impact like that? How can we have that kind of significance? How can we make a, a difference in the world? How can we be a person like this? That's what I want to spend our time talking about as we look at Stephen. And I want to answer that question in two ways. First, we can be like Stephen. We can be a person like this by believing what Stephen believed. And then secondly, by seeing what Stephen saw. So so we become like this by believing what Stephen believed and by seeing what Stephen saw. Let's look at those two things together. First, we become this way by believing what Stephen believed. And to understand what Stephen believed, we really need to understand the charges against him and then this big, long speech he makes in Acts chapter 7, so his defense, right? We have to understand the charges against him and then the defense. First, let's look at the charges against him. You really have to understand this to make sense of the speech later. Some folks have criticized his defense, saying that it's long and rambling and irrelevant. And a lot of that's because you don't understand what the charges are against him. So let's look at that first, the the charges that are made against him. Look in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, making reference to the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. Do you hear what the charges are against him? They're charging him with speaking against the temple and speaking against the law, against the word of God that Moses had given to them. So those are the charges against him. And I want you to know a couple of things. First, these are serious charges, right? Since the temple 
was God's house where he lived in the fullness of his glory. And the law was God's word that revealed his character and his nature and his will. Then to speak against either one of those was to speak against God, which they equated with blasphemy. In the Old Testament, you could be stoned for that. So this is a serious offense. Not that what they did was right. They violated the rule that the Romans had for them. But that was the seriousness of the charges against him. But secondly, notice also that that these are some of the same charges that are made against Jesus. Do you remember in the spring when we went through the Gospel of Mark, when we were in Mark chapter 14, down around verse 58, they produced false witnesses who said that he was going to destroy the temple and that he had spoken against the law of Moses. Wow, same group of people, the Sanhedrin, same MO, the same modus operandi. They're doing the same kinds of things. But remember what Jesus actually said, because I think that's what's driving Stephen's position here. Remember what Jesus actually said about the temple. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19 through about verse 21? He says to the people, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. But then verse 21 says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus had spoken of himself as the new temple replacing the old. And and we see that clearly in Matthew 12 and verse 6 where Jesus says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. You see, what Jesus was saying was this, that before Jesus came... People came to the temple to meet God in all of its fullness. That's where their sin was taken care of by sacrifices. That's where they came to meet with God in all the fullness of his glory. But Jesus is saying that after the finished work of Christ on the cross, after his perfect sacrifice, that we meet God, not in the temple, but in the person of Jesus, right? That the glory of God in all of its fullness rests in Jesus. That the sacrifice for sin that the temple was for is found in Jesus. That the temple was a picture of him. That the temple was to point people to him. That's what Jesus had taught and then been falsely accused of being against the temple. And you may recall that Jesus had also said he would fulfill the law and that the law had testified about him. So perhaps Stephen is making these same kinds of arguments because the charges are so similar against him as they were against Jesus. So those are the charges, speaking against the temple and the law. Listen, I make a big deal about that because of this. Now we're turning to Stephen's defense. What did he say? That's going to show us what he believed, right? So that we can believe what he believed, so that we can be transformed like he's been transformed. But you have to understand the charges against him. Because if you just start in chapter 7 and read Stephen's speech, it is hard to follow. Okay? It is not easy. If you don't know what he's responding to, in fact, let me just, let me just show you. Folks have been very critical of his speech. I noticed the men are doing acts on Wednesday night, and y'all have been using John Stott's commentary. So you'll see when you get here in John Stott's commentary, he says this. He says, many students of Stephen's speech have criticized it as a rambling, dull, and even incoherent A good example is George Bernard Shaw, and then he has several um, quotes. He says that Shaw called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore. He describes him as having delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he. 
And then he goes on to talk about other people who said a lot of what he says is irrelevant. And listen, if you don't understand the charges against him, then, then it is hard to follow. I will admit that. But man, once I started looking at the charges, maybe because I'm a lawyer and I was looking at the charges and what his defense was, the speech makes so much sense after that. Okay? If you keep in mind that that's what they're accusing him of. And it's long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read portions of it. But I just want to summarize it for you. The first thing Stephen says is, you don't need the temple to meet God. That's the first thing he says. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly like that, right? He starts, if you look in chapter 7, in verse 2, he just says, To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in the, uh, still in Mesopotamia. Now, that doesn't sound like a direct indictment, but remember the charges, right? In order to meet God, you've got to go to the temple. He starts with, hey, look, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. There was no temple. <laughs> Wasn't even in the Holy Land. It was in Mesopotamia. This far, wow, by the way, Abraham was a pagan worshiping foreign gods. So that's where he starts. He says, look, you don't have to go to the temple. He got Abraham, our forefather, that we're all related to, he met God in Mesopotamia where there was no temple. And he goes on in verse 9. He talks about Joseph. And he says, God was with Joseph in Egypt. A horrible place to Israelite folks that they look down upon because they've been in slavery to them for 400 years, right? And he says, God was with Joseph in Egypt, and he helped him in all of his troubles. So he's saying, look, you don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. There's no temple in Egypt, and yet God was with Joseph. In verse 31, he says, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Where? In the desert near Mount Sinai, right? Outside of Egypt, before you get to the promised land. In the middle of nowhere, God appeared to him. And he specifies that God says to him, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And the reason why God says that is because God's presence was there in all of its fullness, Wherever God's presence is, is holy ground. But he's making the point, look, the glory of God appeared not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, out in the desert where Moses encountered him. Then he keeps going. He says, even after the temple was built, look what Stephen points out in chapter 7, verse 48. Look what he says. Even after the temple is built, he says, however... The Most High does not live in homes made by men, which sounds a lot like Paul in Acts 17, right? In Athens, Paul's going to say that later to a group of people. And then he quotes Isaiah the prophet. He says, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so Stephen's saying, look, even after the temple was built, God doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands. Now, let me just stop right there. We're developing his argument, but we're trying to learn to believe what he believed, right? Let me just stop right there. It's easy for us to say, oh, silly Sanhedrin, you don't have to go to the temple to meet God in all of his fullness. It's easy for us to say that now. But, but, but think about what we're saying. Listen to me. Think about that. 
because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we have direct access to God everywhere we go. Every moment of every day. We don't have to go to a temple someplace. I wonder, think about that. Let's press this on, right? We want this to impact us. Press on a little bit. Do you live your life with a conscious acknowledgement that God is present with you everywhere you go and everything that you do? Do you live that way? As I was thinking about that, I went back this week and, and read something that I'd read a long time ago, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. If you're not familiar with this, you can get a free PDF online because it's so old. It was written in the 1600s. If you're not familiar with Brother Lawrence, he was born to peasants in France in the 1600s. He had very little education. He joined the army and fought for France in the Thirty Years' War. Afterwards, he served as a footman which nobody knows what that is unless you watch Downton Abbey, and then you know that it's a butler's assistant, kind of a, a men's servant, right? And he says that he did not do that very well. He describes his time, as, he describes his doing that job as he was a great, awkward fellow who broke everything. So he didn't keep that job very long. So he leaves there, and he becomes a monk, and they assign him to work. He went through the song. This guy had a relationship with God that none of them had. And they said, how could this be? How does this guy who's working in the kitchen, it's like he knows God and spends time with him. How do you do that? And he said this, I have tried to constantly live in the presence of God. That's all I do. Hence the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. He said this. He said, at any moment in any circumstance, the soul that seeks God may find him and practice the presence of God. I loved when he described what it was like. He said this, that we might accustom ourselves to a continual conversation with God, with freedom and simplicity. That we need only to recognize God intimately present with us. To, our, to address ourselves to him every moment that we may beg his assistance for knowing his will and things doubtful and for rightly performing those which we plainly see he requires of us, offering them to him before we do them, and giving him thanks when we have done them. That in this conversation with God, we are also employed in praising and adoring and loving him incessantly for his infinite goodness and perfection. That without being discouraged on account of our sins, we should pray for his grace with a perfect confidence as relying upon the infinite merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God never failed offering us his grace at each such action. That he distinctly perceived it and never failed of it. Unless when his thoughts had wandered from a sense of God's presence or he had forgotten to ask for his assistance. A remarkable man working in the kitchen. They say he would pray prayers like... Like this in the kitchen. Lord of all pots and pans, make me a saint But as I get meals and wash the plates. Did he just continually lived in the presence of God? That he acknowledged that. And so he had a continual conversation with him. So he had, watch this, a relationship with him. Maybe you've heard somebody say that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Awareness that he's a real person, that he's with me all the time. So I want to ask you, do you have a continual conversation with God? Do you recognize his presence is with you every moment? Do you ask him for assistance before you do things? 
Do you thank him when those tasks are done? Oh, that we would live life as in the presence of God. And that's what Stephen is arguing. We don't have to go to the temple for that. That now Paul will later say, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God lives in us. And so we have this intimacy with him all the time. Oh, that we would live that way. Let me go on. Stephen answers this argument about the law. And basically his argument about the law is this. Well, what good is the law if you don't obey it? (laughs) And then he kind of gets in their face a little bit. This is what makes him mad. He says, well, Moses gave you the law, and you didn't do it. Look down in chapter 7, verse 37. This is what Moses, who had told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. Notice he has a high view of the law. He believes that it was given by God. That, that it's living and that it's passed on to us, that it is for us, that it does apply to us. That's not his argument. But what does he say? Verse 39. But our fathers refused to obey this in you. Okay? Sometimes we see it in other people quicker than we see it in ourselves. But let's talk about it. Usually, if I'm relying on my performance or I think that I do something good, right, and, and I take pride in that, that, then it does lead to pride. It leads to self-righteousness. Because I think, well, I can do something. I worked really hard and I got it done. Why can't you? Right? And we get moralistic and legalistic and self-righteous and prideful because we think we can do something. Because we don't acknowledge that we fall short of the law. So those people who are relying on their own performance, not relying on the grace of God, one symptom is there's a self-righteous pride that comes with that. Or... Same problem, I'm relying on my performance, but I acknowledge that I don't meet the standard. Oh my goodness, it's up for me being good enough and I don't meet the standard. Instead of self-righteousness, it leads to self-pity. It leads to despair. If my only hope is in me being good enough and I realize that I'm not good enough, I have no hope. And I live my life in shame and fear that somebody else is going to figure that out. And maybe I try to fake it or I just give up altogether and say, forget it. I'll never be good enough. I fall short. And so I'm not going to live life. That way. Maybe you see people, like that. maybe you experience that in your own heart. Listen, let me tell you about the gospel, the good news of the gospel. When my standing before God, when his love for me is based not on what I do, but on what Jesus has done, it means I can't do anything to make God love me anymore. Because Jesus has already accomplished God's love for me on the cross. It means I can't do anything to make God love me any less because Jesus has already taken the punishment for that sin. And so far from leading to pride or self-righteousness, I say, look, I am totally dependent on the finished work of Christ on the cross. If you see anything good in me, it's because I have died and Christ Jesus lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? It's Galatians 2 verse 20. So there's not this pride, even when we do things well, because we recognize that's only Jesus empowering us to do it. But look, there's not the despair either. I did something that was wrong, I fall short, but I serve a God who is gracious, who's made provision for my sin. That that sin has already been paid for. So there's not this despair, there's not this shame that goes on either. 
The gospel rescues us from that. And if you're living in any of those extremes, that's what the gospel rescues you from. And it's an indication that you need to cling to the finished work of Christ and that alone on the cross. Now, there's really a debate that's going on here between Stephen and these folks. His opponents are saying, look, we keep the law. And he's saying, no, you don't. And he was like, okay, well, we keep the law. And he said, no, you don't. And then they say, well, we keep the law. And he does say, no, you don't. But then they say, and when we don't, we go to the temple and we make sacrifices for sin because the temple is where the glory of God is in its fullness. And it's where, it's where God said to make sacrifice to sin so we can come before a holy God. That's how we come before a holy God. We're either, we, we do the right things and when we don't, we make sacrifices for it in the temple. And so they're saying, look, you're not following the law like you should, and you're not making sacrifices for sin, so how are you acceptable before a holy God? And what Stephen's saying here is that God's not confined to a temple, that the glory of God in its fullness is found in Christ, who has kept the law perfectly for us, and has provided a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. That all those other sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. That all these things are pointing to him and they're missing it. Imagine. I remember growing up, you don't have to imagine, I really did, it really did happen. But I, we used to get the service merchandise catalog in the mail and it would come about this time of year. And if you look at the back of it, that's where the toys started. So I would just start at the back. And I would go through and make this list of all these things that I wanted. And I would give that to my mom and dad so that they could be getting me stuff for Christmas. Maybe you had the Sears Wish Book, right? Similar kind of thing. Now imagine Sunday morning comes and all those things that I looked for in the magazine that I was so excited about, they were there under the tree and I opened them. And here they are, all these things that I wanted. But instead, I just go to my room and I keep looking at the service merchandise catalog and the pictures of the glossy pictures of all these things. That's crazy. That's what Stephen's saying they're doing. You're clinging to the temple and the sacrifices. That's just the picture of what was to come, right? Those things were just pointing you to this. You actually have the gift now. You actually have what God had promised, and you are rejecting that. It's so interesting. Once you see that that's what he's saying, now go through and read his speech. Because he says there's this pattern. Every time God sends a deliverer to save his people, y'all reject him. Joseph, he says in verse 9, was sold into Egypt. Why? Because the patriarchs, his brothers, got rid of him. He talks about how Moses, who was raised in Pharaoh's household, right, and had all the wisdom of Egypt, goes to his people and tries, when, when one of them is being abused by an Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian, and he's trying to intervene. He thought that the Israelites would save him. Okay, you got the passage? Yeah, he's 40 years old. He decided to visit the 7, verses 23, 24. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and division by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought... That his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. He's saying, look, you didn't recognize Joseph. You didn't recognize Moses. 
right? He said, you have this pattern of missing the deliverer. And then he gets to Jesus in verse 51. Look, he says, look, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of who? The righteous one, right? The one who kept the law on our behalf. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. You hear Stephen's argument there. And it's so easy for us to look at the Sanhedrin and say, those hypocrites, the very one God sent to save them, and then they don't embrace that. They're holding the Sears wish book instead of actually taking advantage of and enjoying the gifts that have been given. It's easy to get mad at them. But I got news for you. God has provided a deliverer for us. And our hearts are so prone to put our hope in other things besides the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's so important that you see your tendency to do that or you become like the Sadducees, right? Battling either self-righteousness and pride or self-pity and despair, What is it for you? For some of us, it's power. Life is good and it makes sense as long as Jesus has died on the cross for my sins and I have power and can control everything. But if you take one of those two away, I'm upset because power is an idol for me, right? Here's one closer to home. You ready? The approval of men. As long as Jesus died for my sin and everybody's happy with me, then life can go on and I'm okay. But I have to have the finished real Christ and the approval of men to be happy. That's an idol. That's something I trust in, the approval of people to make everything okay when the finished work of Christ on the cross is enough. What is it for you? We've kind of talked about the intellectual belief that we would believe what Stephen believes, Right? And many of us could get all those things right. We could, if you gave us a written test, we could get the answers down. But we don't look like this. We don't live like this. And you know why? It's because this second point. Because even though we might believe what Stephen believed, I don't think we have seen what Stephen saw. Let me look with you at seeing what Stephen saw. Look there in verse 55 of chapter 7. So they're, they're stoning him, they're gnashing their teeth, they're killing him, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, now what's unusual about that when you look at it? Twice he says Jesus is standing. He saw Jesus standing. He said Jesus was standing, that he saw Jesus standing. That's unusual. If you grew up in a tradition and you said the Apostles' Creed all the time, then you got used to saying that Jesus sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right? That that he sits. And the reason the Apostles' Creed says it is that most times in the Scripture, if you read, it says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Here he's standing. Why is he standing? Well, the reason Jesus is often pictured as seated is because he's done, 
right? He is finished. His work is finished. There's nothing to add to his work. And so he's typically seated because there's nothing else for him to do. But there is one thing that Jesus still does. You know what it is? We're told in, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 that he ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. One commentator said that what we see here is that while Stephen is standing defending Christ before men, Christ is standing and defending Stephen before God. What's he saying? He's saying, Father, something like this. Father, Stephen is mine. I died for him. His sins are paid for. He falls short. He's not perfect. But there is no condemnation for him because he is in me. He is in Christ Jesus. He is a brother. He's a sister. He's your child. You must accept him with all the love and affection that you have for me. Because I took the punishment for his sin and there is no more punishment for him. And your favor must rest on him. That's what Jesus is standing and is saying. He's interceding for Stephen. Listen, until you experience that, until you see that, until that becomes real to you, then these things will just be things that you believe, and then there's a disconnect to how you live your life. Because that's at the root of all this application that I've been making for each one of these points, right? He said, I don't really believe Jesus is for me and is interceding for me. I think I have to do a little bit more to make myself right with God. That, yeah, he can be with me anywhere I go, but that's kind of disturbing to me because I feel like he's looking over my shoulder disapprovingly because I know I don't always do everything right. But when I really begin to believe, not just articulate or to get the answer, when I really begin to see Jesus is for me, he has paid for my sin, when I see that, when I experience that he is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven interceding for me and that God's pleasure rests on me, when that really begins to penetrate my heart and my mind, it changes the way that we live. That's how we're like Stephen. Not just knowing these things in our head, but the Holy Spirit helped him to see it. And he was reassured how much he was loved and honored and treasured by God. And when you really believe and have experienced and it's real to you that the love and that, the, that you're honored, that you're cherished, that you're treasured by God, then guess what? You don't need the things of this world so much anymore. As the old hymn says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. And all of a sudden, we're freed up to live like Stephen lived, to react to things like Stephen reacted. We can face tough times when the stones fly, when people make false accusations, or even true ones. We can be honest. We can be upfront. We can live a life free of self-righteous pride or self-pity despair. Now, I preach these sermons. I do think about them ahead of time, believe it or not. And I got to this point, I'm thinking, what am I thinking if I'm sitting there? You might be here today and you're thinking, 
I'm not sure there even is a heaven with a glorious God on his throne up there. Right? I see that Stephen saw that. I see the scripture says that, that he saw heaven open. I'm not even sure there is a heaven with a glorious God on the throne sitting there. And if that's where you are, that's fine. I respect that, right? I'm glad that you're here. I'd love to talk with you about that. But I guess my question for you would be this. <laughs> if there's not a glorious God on the throne who is good, he's all good, and he's all powerful, then, then what hope is there for the world? What hope do you have that all the things that are wrong will be made right? What hope do you have that injustices like Stephen who's falsely accused and illegally lynched? What what hope do you have that that's going to be made right? How, How does that happen in your economy or in your world? But maybe you're here and you do believe that there's a glorious God on his throne who is holy and righteous and good, who will punish evil, who will make things right. Then the hope for us is, well, then what hope is there for you and me? Because we're sinful people who fall short of his standard, who do things that are wrong. So if this is true, what hope is there for you and me? Because none of us lives like we should. Our only hope is to believe what Stephen believed and to see what he saw. Jesus standing up for us, interceding for us, taking our punishment, giving us credit for his perfect life, standing before the Father saying, Father, this one is mine. There's no condemnation for him or for her Because I've already paid the price for their sin. Oh, Lord, open our our minds and our hearts and help us to see this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, no preacher can make people see this or believe this. I just pray that you would come by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're the one who did this in Stephen. Do it in us. Please come and do your work in this group of people. Please come and do your work in me. Help me to believe these things to be true and to actually see and experience and to taste that you are good. Please come and do this in our midst. Do this for our church. Do this for other churches in our community. The kingdom of God's bigger than Redeemer Church. Father, we're so tired of just competitiveness and self-righteous pride and self-pity despair rescue us from these things by your goodness and your grace and your mercy please come and do this for it is in jesus name that we pray amen